one of the issues that we've been focusing on a bit from time to time, and I've been paying attention to in my personal life, is the issue of autism. I feel like when I was growing up, autism was incredibly rare. And on my block, on my block, within, you turn your head, and there's one house that way, one house that way, there's two severely autistic boys. And I, recently we explored this and discussed it and took calls on wh- why this is the case. But when you look at the data, it's not just my anecdotal experience. In a pair of new reports, one focused on eight-year-olds and one focused on four-year-olds, the CDC found that as of last year, one out of every 36 children has autism. Think about that. Now, that is a big increase from the estimate just uh, the year before that where it was 1 in 44, which was a huge increase from 2006, which is 1 in 110. So why are there so many new autistic cases? Is it a reflection of better diagnosis? Is it a reflection of overdiagnosis? Is it a question of some trends going on in society that is causing more people to become autistic? If so, what is it? Well, Somebody that has uh, thought about these issues a great deal and written about them a bit is Jill Escher. She's the president of the National Council on Severe Autism and a board member of the Autism Society in the San Francisco Bay Area. Jill, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thanks for having me, Frank, and hi to all the sleepless New Yorkers out there from California. And we got a lot of listeners around the country, so there's a lot of sleep-deprived folks all over the country (laughs) that you're talking to. Uh, Now, tell folks about your own experience with, with your children. When did you first realize that you were going to be the parent of an autistic child? Yeah, well, we have three children, and um, my second son was born in 1999. He's now 24. Um, But as he was developing, he was, uh, we didn't know it at the time, but basically he wasn't hitting all of his, really any of his cognitive or language or social milestones. So like when you have a little baby, you know, they'll they'll coo at you, they'll babble, they'll make eye contact, they'll respond to their name, they'll play with toys, you know, they'll at a certain point um, start kind of pointing and gesturing, they'll play peekaboo, all that stuff. Our son did none of that. And, you know, at the time, of course, I didn't even know what autism was. And I would think, well, why is this guy like constantly playing with like sand in his fingers? Or why is he always flapping when he looks at a fan? Or why is he staring at a crack in a sidewalk? Why is he so irritable? You know, and and why was he plugging his ears? You know, all these things. We thought maybe he was very sensitive and artistic, like we didn't know. Um, and then, you know, finally we complained and complained to our pediatrician and, and the pediatrician brushed off our concerns. He said, oh, no, you know, he's such a healthy boy. He's so robust. He'll be fine. You know, some boys develop very slowly and some boys develop language late. Don't worry about it. But we kept pestering the pediatrician and finally he said, you know, something is up here. Um, and he referred us to a neurologist. And as I wrote in that piece in the free, in the free press that came out last week, the neurologist basically looked at him and in like one half of a second said, oh, 
you know, he has autism, he has it in spades. So, um, you know, it, it, it was a hard pill to swallow, as you could imagine, um, because it came out of nowhere, right? I had normal pregnancy. He was a healthy guy. There was nothing like autism up our family trees. Um, but we had him evaluated and reevaluated, and everyone came to the same conclusion, you know, that he had a very you know, serious, a very significant degree of autism. Then our daughter was born um, some years later. And of course, by that time, we knew <laughs> what the signs sure. were. And, you know, we saw by the time she was about 16 months that she wasn't now, developing let me conversational inter- language. Let me, let me yeah. interrupt if I can for, for a moment. Were you concerned, given the experience with your, your son, were you concerned while you were pregnant, you know, several years later, that that, that child was there was a chance that that child would have been autistic as well or what were what were doctors telling you about the likelihood of having a second autistic child very good question so we did talk to a number of doctors and researchers because by that time I had met a number of autism researchers and at that time um, it was thought that there was about a three percent chance of having a recurrence right in, in an additional sibling and um and a lesser a lesser recurrence if it's a girl so everybody told us you know lightning doesn't strike twice whatever happened to johnny seemed to be a very random thing you know it's very unlikely to happen again so i, I wasn't overly worried when I was pregnant with her, especially when I found out I was having a girl. That was an enormous relief. I don't know if people know this, but um, the ratio of males to females with autism is four to one. So, uh, you know, as she, she was born extremely healthy, you know, not a problem. Nobody really you know, was concerned about her. But by the time she was, you know, I'd say like, you know, 16 months, it was clear that she wasn't developing, you know, language, conversation, reciprocal interaction. She wasn't playing with toys. You know, she wasn't even watching Elmo. She couldn't even grasp that. And so, um, you know, by that time we were, um, you know, we, we kind of knew what, what we were getting into with her. Now, so you then learned that you were not only a mother of three, but two of your three children were, were it sounds like, pretty severely autistic, right? Correct. And now yes. I, I, my wife and I have one child that's 20 months old. This takes, and as far as I know, he's he's uh, perfectly healthy and we don't see you know any signs of um, anything like autism or anything along those lines. Knock on wood, but it takes all of our energy to keep up with him, to chase after him, to make sure he's not throwing things everywhere, writing on the walls, doing all sorts of other things, getting into trouble. It's exhausting. It's it's a second full time job. Now that's one. I can't imagine having three, and <laughs> let alone having two that are autistic. How much mm-hmm. of a challenge has this been for you as a parent? I quite frankly can't imagine. Oh, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. I mean, I had 20 years of trauma, you know, daily trauma. And, um, you know, I I, I always thought, like, I I had more trauma in a day with my son than most people have in, you know, a year or many, many years of their lives. It was just um, ongoing. And and this happens all the time. Now, my, my kids are very different. They both have severe autism. They're both nonverbal. But my daughter is actually quite mellow, you know, quite easygoing and adaptable. And in fact, we just, you know, this evening, we went out to a concert together. We danced together. We had dinner together. You know, it, you wouldn't know anything was wrong unless you tried to talk to her. 
Um, but my son, on the other hand, um, you know, was and, and continues to have very, very challenging behaviors. And he was extremely destructive. I mean, uh, the furniture in our house was destroyed. You know, he would rip up the family photos. He would chew on the walls, chew on the door frames. Um, he would throw things over the fences. He would, um, you know, get into, you know, the, the food or the soap or the toothpaste and smear it all over the place. I mean, he, he was a, a whole other level of autism. And um, it was exhausting. And he, also, he didn't sleep. And so you, you would go days, weeks, months with minimal sleep. And it, it took an, an enormous toll. You know, I, I had a, a, a job. I was working as a lawyer. And my husband just looked at me one day and said, no, no more. <laughs> well, you, you, you can't do, do sure, all this. This imagine. is crazy. I can imagine. Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. He's your numero uno. And I know you alluded to your daughter and that you guys went to a dance today. I know she's 17 and your your son is, uh, I think, 24. Yep. Uh, So how are they how are they doing today? I know you mentioned that your daughter is uh, pretty mellow. How are both of your children doing today? Yeah. So, you know, my daughter, you know, is, is 17. You know, she, she remains nonverbal. Um, she has very few life skills at all. Like she, she's a very agreeable person. She doesn't look like she has a developmental disability. She's physically quite normal. Um, but, um, you know, despite really intensive um, therapies and, and, and schooling, um, she has very few independent living skills. Like she can't dress herself. She can't, you know, attend to her own hygiene. We need to kind of help her with her bathing and her teeth brushing and everything else. Um, she can't read. She can't write. Um, she can't talk, obviously. Um, you know, she she really lacks abstract thought at all. So, you know, she, her, her cognitive level is probably a, kind of like an 18-month level, which is kind of astonishing. Now, on the other hand... I can take her skiing and she's an excellent skier, wow. right? I can take her ice skating and she's a great ice skater. You know, she, she can do a lot of things, but, you know, in terms of just sort of age level functionality, I mean, she's light years away from where her peers are. We're talking with Jill Escher. She's the president of the National Council on Severe Autism. Jill, based on when you first learned that you were going to be the mom of an autistic boy, what kind of progress has been made in terms of therapy, in terms of medication, in terms of treatment for someone that's autistic from now uh, as as compared to 2001? Oh. God, you know, I, I hate to say this, and I don't like to be Debbie Downer, but, you know, we basically have the same toolbox today that we had, you know, when Johnny was first diagnosed in 2001. I mean, there have been modest changes along the way in terms of behavioral therapies and access to behavioral therapies. There have been modest changes in um, how we use different medications, Um but, you know, for the most part, we have the same tools. 
um, that we had back back then. There has not been tremendous progress on the treatment front. Now, you know, my son, my my daughter, you know, is not on any medications at all. You know, we, we've tr- we've had to try various medications with my son to really control his his self-injury, his property destruction, his aggression, his elopement. When I, say, when I mean elopement, um, these kids wander away often. I think you know a lot of them end up drowning. Um, and uh, with, with Johnny, you know, we're, we're, he's now on a low dose of an antipsychotic drug, um, which I hated to do to him because these things have side effects. But, um, you know, it's... It, it's not. It's nothing novel. I mean, this was. This is the only drug mm. that's been available that's FDA approved for use explicitly in autism. There hasn't been anything else added, um, you know, in these twenty years. I, I alluded to uh, some statistics which seem to show a pretty significant increase in autism among children. Uh, when I did this on the radio previously, a bunch of callers called in and said something to the effect of, no, no, there are still just as many autistic people as there always were. We're just seeing better diagnosis of it now or maybe even overdiagnosis. From your research uh, and your work, Jill, has there been an autism spike in this country? There is unequivocally overwhelming evidence for a very true and very dramatic increase in autism over the past 30 years. And, you know, it doesn't matter where you're looking at the data. You can be looking at the data from the school systems. You can be looking at the data from the Medicaid systems, from the Social Security system, you know, from, um, you know, CDC surveillance, from uh, any system. They show this level of increase even when you are keeping the definition of autism constant. So when you're not like you're using a broader definition, when you're using a narrow definition, for example, like a developmental disability level of autism, you see this exponential increase. It is absolutely undeniable. And, you know, I, I think one thing that I really emphasized in, in my piece in, in the free press, you know, where, where you saw my name, was that, um, you know, it, it's like this this major game of gaslighting going on that, you know, we're saying like, oh, autism's always been here, these numbers, and we never even noticed it before, and we use different labels, and, you know, now we're just like, we're so aware. And it's like, there's no evidence for that. There's no evidence for that. There's strong, strong, strong evidence for these actual increases. And like, I'm going to give you just like one little tiny example from the state of New York. Um, I could give you more examples from California as well. But even in the past four years, um, you have an OPWDD, which is the Office for Persons with Developmental Mm -hmm. Disabilities, and they serve people with a, a very significant level of developmental disability, including autism, including cerebral palsy, including epilepsy, intellectual disability, et cetera. Well, Autism has gone up from about 20,000 in 2016 to about 27,000 in 2020. Okay, and you might say, oh, well, that's really interesting. That's a pretty sharp increase over just four years for a very, very significant disability. And then you might say, well, you know, it must be shifts from other categories. But you don't see. You can look at the data. It's online. There are no shifts from the other categories. The other categories have remained flat or even have increased a little bit. Intellectual intellectual disability has even increased a little bit. So there's no category swapping going on that can explain this. You know, in California, 
um, about 33 years ago, we had whatever, something like 39,000, I'm not 30, I'm sorry, 3,900 cases of autism in our developmental disability system. And it's more than 160,000 cases today. I mean, massive increase. That's a 50-fold increase in cases. And um, there's enough, and, and our system has actually done an internal look to see, like, why is this happening? Like, are we just diagnosing it more? And they aren't finding that. So, no, it, it, that does not increase. It does, does not explain the increase. We just don't understand what's happening. One of the things, we're talking with Jill Escher. She's uh, president of the National Council on Severe Autism and now the, uh, the mother of two autistic young adults. The, the, one of the things you touch upon is the recent rise of what they call the neurodiversity identity movement, where yeah. autism is, is, uh, seen as something to be celebrated as a natural difference, not investigated, prevented, or treated. Is that a positive development? You know, in one sense, it, it, it has one positive element, which is, you know, there are people with high-functioning autism who've been bullied and who've been called losers and who have very poor self-esteem and they might have no friends or they might, you know, feel kind of adrift in the world and they have poor, you know, functioning skills. Um, I, you know, neurodiversity is a kind of a therapeutic paradigm. I think that is actually very helpful for some people to kind of feel more self-empowered and to feel more sense of a belonging and to feel better and to find a community, right? And and to find accommodations that they might need at work, right? Like maybe they have bad social skills, but they're really good at making pizza or whatever, right? Well, fine, you know, they can they can use that as a way to to gain accommodations and acceptance. And I'm I'm actually 100% for that. I'm for anything that helps anyone with autism, you know, have a better life. So, um that's sort of positive. The negative part about it is that it's sort of, it, it comes with this belief system that's entirely wrong that you know that autism is perfectly natural that it's always been here you know that it's part of just normal human variation that it's nothing to be terribly alarmed about and that our job is just to accept autism our job isn't to understand what causes it our job isn't to prevent it our job isn't to treat it so it has some very very negative consequences and i'm very concerned about that uh, understandable. Let, let me ask you uh, before we run out of time here. I could keep you for a whole hour, and I, I do hope you'll. <laughs> I do hope you'll come back. Let me ask you about a couple of theories that we hear about what might be responsible for the uptick in autism. One theory, which is getting sort of renewed attention these days because of the uh, presidential candidacy of Robert F. Kennedy Jr., has to do with uh, a link to vaccines. Here was Robert F. Kennedy Jr. on Megyn Kelly's show talking about a 1999 uh, CDC study? I think all of them. I think these impacts and what the science shows, all these impacts are cumulative. And our kids today are sick because we are bombarding their immune systems with these toxics that they simply cannot handle. Vaccines is part of that story. And it's probably, in my view, the largest single cause, although all of them are very big. Now, in 1999, CDC was also alarmed by the same thing that you described with the parents. So they decided 
to do an internal study of their own database, which is called the Vaccine Safety Data Link. It is the it's the medical records, including the vaccination records of 10 million kids from the 10 biggest HMOs. So it's all the cumulative medical records from all those HMOs and are all housed in one place. And they studied, they said, let's see if these mercury vaccines are causing autism. So they looked at one vaccine. They can look at every vaccine record and then they can look at your medical claims to see if you, you know, had seizure disorders or allergies or if you have an autism diagnosis. They can do a cluster analysis and they can look for associations. They looked at the hepatitis B vaccine, which is loaded with mercury during the first 30 days of life. Kids, they looked at kids who got it during the first 30 days. They compared them to kids who did not get it during the first 30 days, who got it later or didn't get it at all. And here's what they found. The relative risk of smoking a pack of cigarettes a day for 20 years and lung cancer is 10. This was 11.35. They is that, knew. Is that- so, Jill, I know he, there was a lot there, but he sounds like he knows what he's talking about. And I know a lot of people subscribe to that. What's your view on what he said there? with that CDC study, and I'm, I'm hesitant to say anything about what he said. I don't know if he's accurately portraying, you know, the, the study. But, you know, it, it's pretty clear that the mercury, um, well, it was, you know, the, the, the type of mercury that was used as a preservative in vaccines um, is not the cause of autism. Um, even when they removed that you know, from the vaccines, the autism rate continued to go up at pace. It didn't make a dent um, in in the increasing rates. Um, in addition, you know, there's really no um, nexus to a biological mechanism. You know, when it came to to the the mercury, I mean, mercury poisoning is a very real thing. And, you know, it has certain consequences, a certain phenotype, and that doesn't map to the phenotype of autism. Jill, um, we're going to um, we're going to have to end it there. I got to have to uh, pause there. But sure. uh, let's let's talk again in a couple of weeks, if you're willing, if we can get you to stay up late again. I appreciate the conversation very much. Yeah, send the coffee, okay? All right, <laughs> you thank it. you. Thank you, Frank. Jill Escher. Comments, questions, 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. 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 